Good evening, everyone, both in this room and the other rooms with which we have a video link tonight. My name is Susan Marks. I'm from the Law Department here at LSE, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to this inaugural London Review of International Law annual lecture. It would be nice to imagine that you're all here because you're avid readers of the London Review of International Law. I very much hope that after tonight you will become so. But in the meantime, I'm going to acknowledge that you've probably come for other reasons. And so let me just say one or two words about this journal, which I co-edit together with colleagues at LSE and SOAS. The London Review of International Law is an academic journal of international law now entering its third year of publication. What's distinctive about it is an editorial emphasis on theoretical, historical, and socio-legal scholarship in the international legal field, much of it informed in some way by critical social theory, broadly conceived. It also has very nice pictures on the cover. (laughs) Have a look on the website, hosted by Oxford University Press, which I'm delighted and extremely grateful to recognize as a major sponsor of uh, tonight's uh, lecture together with LSE Law. We, uh, the editors of the London Review, began dreaming about a lecture series almost as soon as the journal was launched. Around that time, a beloved colleague and friend, Deborah Cass, tragically died. Deborah was an outstanding scholar of international law, and especially international trade law, perhaps best known for her devastating critique of the constitutionalizing ambitions of the WTO. I want to mention that this annual lecture series is dedicated to her memory. Well, devastating, clarifying, energizing, life-affirming, counter-hegemonic critique is what we were hoping for in this series. And who could possibly get us off to a better start than our speaker tonight? Judith Butler is Maxine Elliott Professor in the Department of Comparative Literature and Program of Critical Theory at the University of California, Berkeley. She also holds the Hannah Arendt Chair at the European Graduate School and is the recipient of the Andrew Mellon Award for Distinguished Academic Achievement in the Humanities, the Adorno Prize uh, from the city of Frankfurt, the Bruder Prize from Yale University for Lifetime Achievement in Gay and Lesbian Studies, and the insignia of the French Chevalier in the Order of Arts and Letters, along with honorary degrees from many universities in many countries. Her books, From Subjects of Desire, Gender Trouble and Bodies That Matter, through The Psychic Life of Power, Excitable Speech and Antigone's Claim, to Undoing Gender, Giving an Account of Oneself and Then Precarious Life, Frames of War, and most recently Parting Ways and Dispossessions, are among the most influential and indeed consequential works of social inquiry of our time. She is one of those rare living scholars whose ideas you use even when you're not using them. At the same time, she is a public intellectual of rare emancipatory commitment and courage, someone who has consistently insisted on and enacted the necessity of speaking injustice out loud 
as opposed to being muted and has done so at very considerable personal cost. Of course, one thing that Professor Butler is not is a professor of international law. <laughs> Yet there too, we perhaps need to say that she is even when she is not. For thematized in her work are issues that go to the very core of international legal practice and thought. War and the justifications adduced for it. Law and the regulation of violence. Occupation, forced dispossession and colonial subjugation. Self-determination and people's rights. Human rights and the rights of minorities, refugees and stateless people. The prosecution of war crimes and crimes against humanity. The relation between international law and the nation state. Territorial disposition and territorial delimitation. Not to mention her work on universality, on suffering at a distance, on personhood and the normativities associated with gender and sexuality, on precariousness and precarity, grievable and ungrievable life, livability, survivability and responsibility. The list could go on. Her title for tonight's lecture is Human Shield. To someone working in the international legal field, that phrase connotes the rule in the Geneva Conventions and in the law of armed conflict more broadly that those engaged in hostilities shouldn't use civilians, prisoners of war and other protected persons as shields to military operations. But in her writing to date, Professor Butler already hints that there is more to this than may initially meet the eye. Referring to recent attempts to justify the killing of civilians and especially children on the ground that they were being used as human shields, she invites us to pursue the logic of this and consider whether it entails a claim that all lives destroyed in war are human shields. Because if it does, then she suggests those lives are no longer lives but military instruments, threats to life. And as she puts it, we then have a ready justification for murder. Well, let's hear now where this is going to take us. Please join me in welcoming to the podium Professor Judith Butler. Thank you very much. I appreciate the warm, uh, enthusiastic welcome, and um, that was a, a, a truly um, a capacious and affirmative introduction. Um, oh, I see. I'm trying to do too much at the same time. Yes, great. Thank you. Oh, I never know how to tip, though, in London, so... Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the use of human shields is a war crime, so a great deal is at stake when we set out to define what a, what a human shield is and how we might be able to identify its operation. The International Criminal Court makes plain that treating humans as shields involves using the presence of civilian and other protected persons, arguably diplomats, to render certain points, areas, or military forces immune from military operations. 
This definition builds upon the third and fourth Geneva Conventions. Immunity here is a term that implies establishing a zone that cannot be justifiably targeted for bombings or military assault of some kind. So immunity is effectively a safeguard against military destruction or its potential. Implicit as well is the notion here that civilians are instrumentalized as shields and so have become part of military actions and so lost their immunity. The thought is minimally paradoxical only because if humans are used to protect certain areas from, say, bombardment, that assumes that no one would deliberately bomb civilian areas since that itself is a war crime. The use of human shields in this sense, one that assumes that they are where they are involuntarily, is a war crime that depends upon the unwillingness of the military adversary to commit a war crime. As we can see, one war crime hedges against another war crime. And I'll try to make clear what I mean by this. The famous internet site Investopedia tells me that when people decide to hedge, I'm quoting now, they are insuring themselves against a a negative event. This doesn't prevent a negative event from happening, but if it does happen and you're properly hedged, the impact of the event is reduced. So hedging occurs almost everywhere, And we see it every day. For example, I'm still quoting, if you buy house insurance, you are hedging yourself against fires, break-ins, or other unforeseen disasters. Perhaps immunity has a certain financial meaning uh, in the discussion of human shields, one that is connected with the other unforeseen disasters. One is inoculated with a war crime in order to ward off or hedge against a war crime. So what starts as a scene of war structured by targets of destruction and defense becomes a scene in which one legal definition is played out against another. There's a wager in the scene, a bet and calculation. One group can only destroy another by committing a war crime in the course of that destruction. The other group can only ward off an assault by presenting its civilian and protected population as a target that lures the assaulting party into committing a war crime by realizing its military objective or presents a disincentive for that objective. Attacking civilians and using civilians, wagering on their destructibility as weapons of war, both presume that the prevailing definitions of war crimes are there on the field of battle structuring the field, and so part of the aim and method of an assault rather than, uh, as we are used to thinking, a category used in the retrospective adjudication of, um, of assault. In other words, the law, we might say, the law governing war crimes um, and human sh- the use of involuntary shields as war crimes is there in the military field of operations, not just, not primarily, a means of adjudicating claims about what happened after the military operation is finished. Banu Bargu makes plain in her impressive work on human shields that there are, of course, voluntary forms of human shielding, which would include human barricades against military or police assault, 
and involuntary forms of human shielding, which would include being positioned in such a way to ward off an attack on an area or a military force where the attacker would be forced to commit a war crime on the way to their target. The doctrine regarding human shields is, of course, an an evolving one, so though we may wish from the start to stipulate a definition, we should be aware that any such stipulation takes place within a field of power resonating with war practices and anticipating further war. It's not precisely outside of war, since in the case of involuntary human shielding, at least, it would seem that those who ostensibly establish civilians near military operations or stockpiles to ward off attack are wagering that the attacking forces would rather not attack civilians, um, uh, that they would rather not attack than commit a war crime, and perhaps more importantly, would rather not be seen within the media, or indeed the law more generally, as having committed a war crime. Such coverage could constitute significant reputational damage for a state, especially one that wishes to position itself in a morally superior position to its enemy. If the point of an involuntary human shield operation is to bet with human lives that the attacking force will not destroy those civilian lives, a kind of wagering, several presuppositions are already at work. We are, after all, presupposing that all actors are operating within a similar form of rationality and that they are calculating consequences in the same way or with the same kinds of interests. This betting activity at work in involuntary human shielding suggests that bets and hedges are part of the war effort, that they belong to a set of tactics within war, and so it's not just that civilians and protected populations are now involuntarily instrumentalized as weaponry, warding off or redirecting oncoming assaults, but that committing a war crime becomes part of a tactical wager. Who will commit it first? Who will commit the war crime in such a way that it will be broadcast as a war crime and identified as such? Who will be positioned as a victim of a war crime and who will be its perpetrators? It matters in adjudicating the moral reputation of the actors, to be sure, but it is a way that the court, and I would suggest the International Criminal Court in particular, is already there in the battlefield contributing to the aims and methods of military action. The case is being made, the evidence produced and garnered at the very same time that the military action is taking place, or even before. But what about voluntary human shielding? What about the students and faculty who link arms against security forces seeking to disperse demonstrations against austerity in, well, in Athens, or what used to be Athens, or former Athens, Um, Istanbul, Berkeley, Manchester, Santiago de de Chile, or or Montreal. They are following nonviolent protocols. They are unarmed. They are defending the rights of protest, enacting a claim to public space or indeed to public education. As Banu Bargu points out, human chains have formed as modes of resistance to military assault, such as those that took place in Diyarbakir to resist Um, military assaults by both the Turkish and Iraqi governments at the the same time. 
That human chain apparently stretched to three kilometers, and in cases such as these, but also the case of Rachel Corey in Palestine, one can see what Bargu calls a new form of agency on the stage of politics. In such cases, one puts one's life at risk for the purposes of realizing a democratic struggle and participating in a resistance to anti-democratic military assault. Over and against involuntary forms of human shielding, that is, being used as a shield by others for a tactical purpose, and so a weapon, there are those who volunteer their bodies, I would say uh, via Hannah Arendt, volunteer their bodies in concert. They seek quite deliberately to deter attacks or at least slow the attack down, um, as uh, Bargu puts it, decrease its intensity and ultimately pressure the attacker to recalculate costs and benefits of the intended action. Costs and benefits. Well, one question is how the cost-benefit rationality is there reckoning on the consequences of the action. We might ask, are all voluntary human shielders consequentialists, and are they calculating consequences with their own bodies, even their lives? Are they reckoning on themselves as embodied human capital? Maybe Rachel Corey realized that the injury or death to her body would, in fact, receive greater publicity than the injury or death to any number of Palestinians who have suffered her fate. Maybe she was calculating on the white American value of her life and placing herself in front of the bulldozer intent on demolishing Palestinian homes. I do not know. But there is an alternative. It could be that those who risk their lives in practices of resistance are quite literally standing for other principles that may or may not be realized in time and that they stand for these principles without any clear calculation that by, standing for those, that by standing, those principles will be realized more broadly in society, but simply with the hope that they will be. In other words, I'm not sure they're always calculating according to a cost-benefit rationality. Indeed, they embody what should be embodied everywhere, and in embodying it then and there, they have no guarantee that any further embodiment will happen, but something else, hope which opens up an indefinite future, one whose realizability is always in question. So we may well ask, is everyone reckoning on consequences in this scene, both those who position populations in an involuntary way as human shields and those who take up human shielding as a voluntary action? Those who position populations as involuntary shields are wagering either that the military enemy will not target them, since that would be a war crime, and the military cares about not committing a war crime, or they are thinking that the military enemy may well kill them and claim that their bodies were actually weapons, and so they were justified in killing them. In this last scenario, the claim that a population was involuntarily positioned to shield a military target makes the population into a weapon of war, at which point we see, I think, a quick and slippery distinction, rather a quick and slippery instance, of how a shield becomes reconceptualized as a weapon for the purposes of waging war. I'll return to this when we consider how civilian populations in Palestine have not only been figured as human shields by the Israeli government that has targeted them, but also how the attribution of the status as human shield works as part of a war strategy. This last function is what we might call 
the discursive allegation of the status of human shield to a specific civilian population. And we might see that it operates precisely to rationalize the destruction of that population. In other words, in identifying the population with a weapon or understanding the population as an extended version of a target, that population becomes eligible for attack. It loses its immunity. I get ahead of myself at this moment, since this is a point to which I will return. But I want to underscore that when we speak about voluntary and involuntary human shields, we are from the start talking about designations that take place in language and for specific reasons. These are discursive formations that are already mobilized in the service of a war effort or in the midst of a war field. If we assume that these terms simply describe facts on the ground, that we can settle on definitions and just test the empirical evidence to see whether or not this is the case, I think we are missing something. Um, We mistake the discursive formulation of these categories for purely descriptive ones. In fact, it remains unclear that any part of the civilian Palestinian population in Gaza during the military bombardment of the summer of 2014 was, in fact, acting as human shields. Okay, But this was, of course, the allegation, and it continues to be the allegation. Some of the evidence produced by the State of Israel turned out to be fabricated, and other forms of evidence are not yet available. The truth is, we do not know. So at this point, we have no way to judge whether the allegation is true, and my sense is that the contemporary petition to the International Criminal Court on the part of the Palestinian Authority, um, if successful, will expose both Israel and Hamas to investigative scrutiny. Similarly, when and where a population is named as operating as a human shield, um, um, uh, that can operate as a discurs- as a very specific discursive operation of war, since involuntary human shields can be regarded as weapons and in this sense become legitimate targets of destruction. There is, of course, a wager in naming a population as, a, as an involuntary human shield, since if there's no evidence that they are positioned near artillery, artillery or that artillery is positioned near them, the allegation of human shielding can be disproven, and what remains is a wanton attack on civilian populations. But perhaps evidence does not much matter at this point, since confusing a civilian population with combatants is also part of the game, especially when it can be claimed that the majority of the population voted for the government with which the attacking nation disagrees, or which the attacking government hopes to take down or destroy. Evidence for the claim that some set of civilians should be understood as combatants invariably comes later, either in some indefinitely postponed appointment in an international criminal court that does not yet represent the government of the civilian population, or a criminal inquiry on the part of the United Nations of the attacking state itself, both of which can be challenged for their legitimacy. And we are indeed seeing that the ICC Um, is being challenged for its legitimacy right now. I'll turn to that in a moment. Under conditions in which the evidence for the claim that a population is functioning as an involuntary human shield within the field of war is indefinitely postponed, the allegation is free to run wild, as it were, functioning without a referent 
doing its rhetorical work within the field of war without any obligation to do descriptive justice to the civilian population that has been targeted, wounded, or destroyed. I suggested that the legal definition of the war crime was already structuring the field of war, determining to some extent the tactical direction and aim of the human shield. I want to suggest as well that this form of reckoning and wagering that seems to be implicit to both voluntary and involuntary forms of human shielding um, suggests that there's a, a, a certain economic logic that is also at work in the field of military conflict. At the risk of overstating, I want to suggest that there's a weaponizing of the war crime and the war crime allegation that happens within the field of conflict and that it operates by virtue of a certain wager or bet, one whose economic status seems linked to a cost-benefit analysis, even a form of neoliberalism at the heart of war. In the same way, there is a weaponizing of human shielding that happens quite apart from the concrete deliberate intentions or self-definitions of those described as human shields. So before we decide, if we ever do decide, whether we are in favor of voluntary human shielding and opposed to involuntary human shielding, that would be easy to do, and perhaps I should just say that and we could get on with dinner. But uh, before we do make that decision, um, uh, I want to suggest first that um, we have to understand the status of the voluntary uh, when the discourse of human shielding operates in large part indifferent to indifferently as it were with complete indifference to the distinction between what is voluntary and what is involuntary even if we discern a theory and practice of freedom in the practice of voluntary human shielding we still have to ask whether the intentions that motivate an act control the ultimate significance of that act within the field of war it may be that the discourse of human shielding confounds the intentions by which the practice is voluntarily assumed. And it may be as well that the discourse of human shielding falsely describes the situation of civilian populations who have neither been involuntarily positioned as human shields nor voluntarily assumed that position, so who are outside of the field of um, human shielding itself. Um, in other words, uh, there is an involuntary action that operates when the allegation arises that a targeted population is actually either engaged in voluntary or involuntary human shielding. And so we're left with a paradox. An assaulting army and government can designate a population as involuntary human shields and um, and the involuntary character of that very designation effectively produces them as a human shield in a public discourse that comes to accept the allegation. Even when they've neither been positioned that way by their own government nor positioned themselves. They are thus, we might say, involuntarily positioned as human shields by the allegation that they are human shields. That is to say, by this discursive movement within war that legitimates their targeted destruction. Although Bargu argues that voluntary human shielding has the great benefit of establishing a form of resistance to military assaults and to militarism more generally, she also seems to rely on this form of wagering to make her case. 
Um, we're talking about risking human lives, betting on their destructibility, wagering that the prospect of destroying or sacrificing lives will lead to negative legal and political consequences and will then act as a deterrent, a disincentive uh, to those who uh, uh, are engaged in destructive military operations. What is the idea of freedom implicit in this notion of risk-taking? I'm free to risk my own body in the face of bulldozers or military arsenal, even risk my life, but I do this in order to maximize the possibility of thwarting a military assault on homes, land, people. Of course, I have great admiration for such activism since it involves putting one's body on the line and doing so in the context of a collective movement of resistance. But I still want to ask about the meaning of voluntariness and of risk that is often invoked in such contexts. After all, are we speculating with our bodies at such instances, and have they become part of human capital? Or is there a different sense of risk that opens up another order of values? I certainly agree with Ernesto Laclau and others who have insisted that there's always a risk in any political action, whether it will work, whether its consequences will be appropriated and deployed in reactionary ways. I want to hold out for a distinction between what cannot be calculated well, precisely because we cannot foresee consequences well enough, and something we might actually call the incalculable. In other words, it may be that we cannot calculate the consequences of voluntary or involuntary human shielding because we do not know how damaging it would be to military actors to destroy certain populations. But if we frame the issue that way, there is this I, or indeed this we, who is calculating consequences, trying to be as knowing as possible, and deciding its action on the basis of of this limited perspicacity about the future. The free subject, the subject in its freedom, becomes then a calculating and instrumental one, entering the field of war in order to thwart certain kinds of targets. As an active intervention and a form of resistance, it depends upon the calculating and instrumental knowledge of a subject who exercises its freedom through acting on the basis of those calculations, one who calculates itself, betting with and on the body as a form of resistance. So there is for me a basic question of whether an action that seems to be based on a voluntary calculation can lead to unwilled consequences and whether the unwilled is something that can ever be overcome through voluntary calculations of this kind. In other words, the language by which I name my action may be replaced or reversed by a discursive operation that holds sway over the situation, one over which I have no control. I designate myself and so enter into a practice of designation that precedes and exceeds my own voluntary way of situating myself. There's no way to know whether the name I give myself will be the name by which I am named since I've entered into a life of discourse that exceeds the chosen position I take within it. Similarly, I may well be named in ways that I never chose, and though I start out with no designation or one that I preferred, I come to see that I thought self-naming could outstrip the power of interpolation, and I was simply wrong, sometimes fatally so. If we identify freedom with voluntary forms of risk-taking based on calculation, then perhaps we not only misunderstand the operation of the involuntary in those quite consequential discursive operations of war, but we also misunderstand the way in which persons and populations are designated 
interpolated and discursively produced through modes of naming that are sometimes quite indissociable from forms of targeting. So the question for me is less whether my risking of myself will pay off in the end, but whether whatever risk I take with others will affect a hegemonic shift in forms of discourse that are at once forms of war. So there's a larger question. In what sense is the body with which I calculate also, to some degree, I don't know if I could say that, I guess I can't say that, in some respects, I can't even say that. Let's, let's try again. Um, in what sense is the body with which I calculate also incalculable? And what about the bodies of those targeted and destroyed? Countable, to be sure, but calculable? We may think that our only task is to distinguish between those who wager with their lives for good reasons and those who wager for bad ones. But if political resistance is now understood as a form of calculating with the body, something has, I think, gone wrong. Is our collective freedom to be conceived as a form of wagering? And are we now within a certain neoliberal discourse as we enter into resistance? Maybe there's no way not to be implicated in this discourse, but I hope it might seem useful still to pose the question as one worth thinking about. My task this evening is not to go further down that road, although I will take questions on it later, but I do want to return briefly to counting, to mourning, and even the uncountable. Perhaps it might be useful to think about numbers of the war dead we cannot count and must count, but then think about how and whether numbers count, by which we mean do they matter, do they figure, are they marked or mourned, and yet again a third kind of counting, one that we might call wagering. Civilians are targeted as part of a calculation, a bet, but of a very particular kind, It's not just that bringing about the deaths of civilians is instrumental to the achievement of destroying a population or replacing their government. It's rather that those who target civilians are forcing the question to the enemy government. How many of your own people are you willing to lose and see killed? In other words, the one who targets and engages in extortion in this way commits the killing and then produces extortion through killing We will continue to kill your people until you submit to our will, and you will be seen not only as presiding over this killing, but making it happen. The responsibility for those deaths will be yours. You don't want to go to dinner with this person, okay? (laughs) You want to stay away from these people, okay? A different kind of wager is at stake for those who rely on the international criminal courts to name and prosecute war crimes. If we bet that the assaulting party in committing a war crime will be harmed politically as a consequence of committing that crime, then we assume that something called the broader world or the international community will react with sufficient outrage when those populations are destroyed or even threatened with destruction. We assume as well that a war crime is simple to recognize and that there will be general consensus when that happens. Such a wager not only depends upon already activated moral sentiments in the broader world, but it assumes, presumes as well, that the broader world is disposed to valuing um, the continuation of life for all populations in the same way. In other words, there is a wager that a military assault will not be conducted against these lives here and now, but if there is already an operative differentiating power at work, establishing some lives as more grievable than others, then the wager implicit, indeed, in both voluntary and involuntary shielding will not work. 
under conditions in which civilian lives are not recognized as lives or where whole populations are not regarded as potentially grievable, then it does not follow that the assaulting party will really be deterred from destroying those populations. If a population is, is understood as losable, disposable, and it is then destroyed, what has been destroyed, something disposable has been destroyed. It's a redundancy. Nothing has happened. So two points are worth restating here. The first is that to claim that a population is grievable is to claim that those lives are worth sustaining and protecting, that they have a value and a claim to a livable life with an open future, one where not just surviving but flourishing is possible. It does not mean that we imagine the death of the other all the time. For another to be grievable is for another to be worth valuing, worth preserving, for the value of a life to be institutionalized in economic, social, and political forms. That kind of value is not a matter of economic speculation, so we're not from this perspective primarily concerned with whether the military enemy will reckon that the destruction of these or those lives will be worth the reputational damage or delegitimating effect that the assaulting party may suffer. That reckoning on the value of life assumes that the value of life is determined instrumentally and differentially. We can see the instrumental value of a life in human shielding, and here I would say in both its voluntary and involuntary forms, depends on a prior differentiation among lives, those who are more or less grievable and valuable, those who are more or less living, those who exemplify the form of human life worth saving, and those who in their person and their cultural or racial status come to represent a living threat to a form of human life worth saving. This last form of differentiation operates in racism and in forms of colonial rule that depend upon and reproduce differential value among living creatures of the human kind. Even that definition seems to stumble on itself, since the definition and form of the human is always at stake in a racist discourse. Who is human? Where does the human and the inhuman come together or diverge? Who decides these matters of typology? And how does violence reside in every stipulation of this kind? Of course, I've not yet laid out what modes of resistance may be that include forms of involuntary human shielding, but whose form and significance does not depend upon wagering on the value of those lives risked or reduce resistance to a wagering activity. But I am trying to do that in other quarters right now, just for the record. For the moment... I want only to defend forms of nonviolent resistance that gain their political meaning not only or exclusively through reference to their immediate consequences, that is, maximizing the effects of putting life at risk or subjecting life to a risk calculus. So I question whether voluntary human shielding is an adequate description for collective forms of nonviolent resistance, and whether there are forms of political principle and hope that are not subject to a calculation of this kind. My main concern will be to return to that double sense of the shield understood as voluntary, the shield protects against attack, and so is not a weapon, understood as involuntary, the shield protects against an attack, and so is part of a war effort, an apparently defensive object that has been transformed into a weapon, and to ask whether there is any way out of the logic established by this figural scheme." Under what conditions and through what means does this transfiguration occur? 
First, let us note that the human body must become metal object or or machine for it to be cast plausibly as a weapon. Or it can stay a body, even a mortal one, if its death is itself understood as an attack on those who attack it. Right? In other words, well, we'll get there. The only way to understand the dead body as an attack on its murderer is if the image or report of that death implies that the attacker has committed a war crime and that the allegation of the war crime is considered to be an attack. It's then, uh, it is then the presented evidence of death that serves as the basis of the allegation, and that supported allegation is then understood to show that an act of war has been committed. Um, so... Such a move conceptualizes law, and even in the international criminal court, as a war zone, which means that law cannot adjudicate war crimes without itself operating as a weapon of war, or so it seems from within this toxic imaginary. So let me state this perhaps a little bit more clearly. Um, a civilian that's, that's identified as in a set of involuntary human shields is uh, allowing... Uh, uh, a putative enemy to freely attack uh, the attacker um, and in that sense facilitating the war and the attack. Uh, so it's not, it loses its civilian, that community loses its civilian um, uh, status and becomes complicit with the attack against the att- what I'm calling the attacker. Well, that's one point, but there's a second point, which is that there's the death of populations. What do we do with the death? How can the dead populations attack the attacker? Well, if those deaths are understood to be the result of a war crime, and that is named as such, and that naming becomes plausible, then the allegation of the war crime potentially delegitimates the attacker and so is understood as a further attack, right? The allegation of the war crime becomes a form of attack. It's another effort to destroy the attacking state. And that, of course, becomes uh, particularly important if that state worries about its legitimation. Um, If I suggest that what happens in Gaza is related to what happens in Oakland, California, or Ferguson um, near St. Louis, Missouri, I'm not just suggesting an analogy or riffing on some resonances. As you may well know, the militarization of the police force in the United States and elsewhere has depended in large part on weapons and training sessions supplied by states such as Israel and Bahrain. In fact, the program called Urban Shield is a state program that officially advertises itself as dedicated to disaster preparedness. It is part of the Urban Areas Security Initiative, which is run by Homeland Security in the United States. Although most of these programs have to do with natural disasters and collapsed infrastructures, at least a quarter of them, um, at least least 25% of the funding is allocated to what are called counterterrorism activities, um, presumptively happening mainly in urban centers of the U.S. In 2011, Urban Shield met in several U.S. cities, including Oakland, California, just one month before the police raid on Occupy Oakland using chemical weapons, rubber bullets, and flash grenades. At that meeting, U.S. police <clears throat> undertook training exercises with the Yamam, 
an Israeli border police unit that claims to specialize in counter-terror operations. But Max Max Blumenthal contends, uh, and I quote, is better known for its extrajudicial assassinations of Palestinian militant leaders and long record of repression and abuses in the occupied West Bank and Gaza. Blumenthal adds, and I quote, Urban Shield also featured a unit from the military of Bahrain, which had just crushed a largely nonviolent democratic uprising by opening fire on protest camps and arresting wounded demonstrators when they attempted to enter hospitals. End quote. The general militarization of the police is not exactly news, but one question that deserves further inquiry is whether it was the Occupy movement that was targeted for dispersal and what role the militarization of the police plays in the killing of unarmed black men and women as well within urban centers in the United States. This becomes especially important when we think about the killing of black people, mainly men but also women, who are already subdued or unarmed on the ground or in a chokehold or in the process of running away from police with their back to the police. In such cases, and there are at least, uh, there are many, many such cases, but at least uh, eight to ten that have become uh, the the center of the Black Lives Matter movement, the police treat the subdued or fleeing body as a threat and as an eligible target. How does this mode of perception and form of reasoning take hold? After all, in some cases, a man is leaving a store unarmed, but he's perceived as a threat. Is it the proximity of the black body to the convenience store? How does it work exactly? Is it the presumption of theft? Even so, there's such a thing as arrest. Uh, is, Is it the movement of the body itself, or any movement at all is considered an audacious act? Given that there's no visible weapon and no grounds to think that one is hidden, what allows for this moving body suddenly to become a moving target? What takes hold at such a moment? Another man, Eric Garner, in a chokehold, states that he cannot breathe. He states it, in fact, 11 times, and the chokehold is not relaxed, but rather tightened. Is that because his utterance is not heard, or is that because the fact that he can speak shows that he can breathe? Or is it rather that nothing short of taking his breath away for good will satisfy the destructive aim that guides the police at such a moment? That man dies because he's perceived as a threat, and the video explodes on the Internet with all 11 pleas plainly recorded. Apparently, it does not matter that these men are unarmed because the threat they pose is not the threat that comes with carrying weapons. They have become, as it were, civilian targets, at which point the threat that they embody, we might even conjecture the threat that is their body, justifies the the violent action against them. Perceived as a threat even when unarmed or completely physically subdued or lying on the ground, as Rodney King clearly was, or coming back home from a party on the train and having the audacity to say to a policeman that he was not doing anything wrong and should not be detained, Oscar Grant, we might be tempted to seek recourse to the visual evidence of the tape simply to show that this was unjustifiable violence or murder. And indeed, if I were in a court of law, I would say, use that tape. But visual evidence is always interpreted and can be used time and again to establish an unarmed person as a civilian worth killing. A civilian, in other words, who is perhaps always almost killing, about to kill, uh, who, if left to go free, will kill, um, and whose uh, status um, uh, as a potential killer frames the interpretation 
of the visual scene. We'll return to this category of the civilian in a moment, since I think the category is also being targeted in both Palestine and Ferguson, although for very different reasons and different ways. But to arrive there, let's consider the logic that governs the perceptual field of police activity as it established itself now as a military power in relationship mainly to a racial minority. In the instances I briefly sketched for you from the U.S., and I'm sorry about this, because I know that this is what U.S. scholars do. Um, The police see a threat when there is no gun to see or even when someone is fully subdued and crying out for his life, when that person is moving away or his back is turned or he's in a chokehold and cannot move. If we try to discern the threat in the picture, we misunderstand the logic that governs the visual field within the scene of this kind of urban war. It's clearly not necessary to see someone carrying or pointing a gun for them to be figured as a credible threat. The person visually captured, we might say, by a racial phantasm already is that threat. In that sense, the body is perceived in such a way uh, that it is figured as an instrument of war. It follows within the terms of this logic that it is only, therefore, a defensive move on the part of the police to harm, subdue, or eliminate that body. And indeed, self-defense is the argument the policemen give time and again. That body within the capture of the racial phantasm has already departed from the body politic, is no longer a civilian precisely, but a threat to civilian order. The police can claim that they were defending themselves only if they can construe the person they killed as someone who was a credible threat. I've written recently about how the unarmed black man, either moving in the other direction or fully subdued, can still be construed as a threat, and that this is at least partially because the threat to life that is imagined at such a moment is a threat to the ongoing life of white supremacy. But I'm going to try not to get too polemical here. One reason such astonishing arguments hold sway, mainly with white juries, is that they are compelled to identify with and ratify the white policeman's fear of black people. So when the policeman claims that he kills in the name of self-defense, even though no evidence can be brought to support this claim, it is nevertheless judged credible. A community of hate and fear, we might say, consummates consummates itself in the moment that such police are exonerated. And perhaps it's also worth remembering Justifying lethal violence in the name of self-defense is reserved for those who have a publicly recognized self to defend. What they defend against is not precisely a self, but a threat to the racially dominant regime of selfhood they themselves exemplify. So when police functions become militarized and civilian populations are regarded as threats to security, then any number of basic liberties or constitutional rights can easily be suspended. And so, too, can police ignore protocols of nonviolence established by civil rights movements. In the United States, it matters that crowd control training takes place under the auspices of homeland security rather than through local police training, since homeland security allows for numerous ways of suspending civil liberties, including rights of assembly, association, and speech, even a right to life and protection from harm that are otherwise constitutionally protected. Given that a strong black presence is at work in any public demonstrations against police violence, especially in Oakland, including the recent and continuing Black Lives Matter demonstrations, the invocation of counter-domestic terrorism security protocols by the local police on such occasions um, 
figures the black community's expression of collective and justified rage against unjustified killing as a potential terrorist outbreak, right, a breach of, of security. We can see in this situation one quite literally established by the Yamam training of the Oakland police force, the transposition of Palestinians figured as terrorists who need to be contained and detained onto the black population of Oakland who need to be either contained, detained, or dispersed. St. Louis County's police force were outfitted in full riot gear with military-grade protection and weapons, in the case of Ferguson, signaling that they were not just patrolling the streets but engaged in a form of warfare. This counter-terrorist police training establishes the street as a war zone, not only interpolating blacks as Palestinians, but let's just say <laughs> a certain phantasmatic figure of Palestinian terrorist, but fi- figuring Palestinians as invariably terrorists, so making, making all of those um, reductions. The collaboration of militarized police powers across these geopolitical borders prefigures the emergent solidarity um, uh, uh, between both populations as they seek to resist militarized violence. Indeed, that is exactly what happened when we saw that Palestinians sent tweets, from Gaza in fact, sent tweets to protesters in Ferguson on and around August 15th, instructing them on how to protect their eyes against the gas used to, to disperse the crowd. They advised them how to wear a mask, why it's important not to rub your eyes, how to use milk to treat the wounds. But they also offered political solidarity. Hashtag Palestine, hashtag Ferguson. Quote, Palestine knows what it means to be shot for your ethnicity, end quote. Like Oakland's police, the St. Louis County Police Department, responsible for crowd control in townships like Ferguson in the summer of 2014, explicitly thanks Israeli counter-terrorist training for their own state-of-the-art preparedness to handle terrorism in their own neighborhood. St. Louis County Police Chief, a man named Timothy Fitch, released a memo in 2011 reporting that he was honored to have been selected to undergo anti-terrorist training in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and Tiberias in a seminar sponsored by the Anti-Defamation League. He also explained that St. Louis has a fusion center, quote-unquote, that brings together police work and military security operations, thus blending the two in the service of security. Clearly recognizing this alliance between tactics and the targeting of racial, racial minorities, a targeting that is part of the very process of racialization, Palestinians at Birzeit held a conference on August 18, 2014, to underscore the importance of that solidarity. Speakers included those who had recently returned from touring the, U- touring the U.S. with the Right to Education group, in an effort to establish a greater understanding for the black struggle against racism, not only in that country, but on a global scale. One link between Palestine and Ferguson that the conference emphasized was the question, was paying attention to the question of how to contest the project of racial and colonial subjugation on the part of a militarized state. But there's another link as well, as there's another link as well, and that has to do with the category of the civilian and the concept of the state. There can only be a war crime in Gaza if there is an accepted civilian community, and there can only be unjustified police homicide if the person who is killed is is understood as an innocent civilian. 
But if both of those populations are now recast as security risks or threats, or if their bodies are understood as weaponized from the start, the sphere of civic protection is displaced by the protocols of war. Of course, anti-black racism cannot be restricted to national frames, and there are persuasive reasons to follow the post-national framework for thinking about global racism and transatlantic black struggles in the way that Stuart Hall, Paul Gilroy, and many others have proposed. Tracking the slave trade shows the broad transatlantic reach of the enslavement of black people since the 16th century. Indeed, the first slave arrived in the United States in 1501, so within four years of the inception of this colonial discovery. Angela Davis points out that in the aftermath of slavery in the U.S., a strategic problem emerged for many who sought to subjugate or contain black lives within the terms of emancipation. Debt peonage was one way, and that was linked to prisons, to chain gangs, and to forced labor. For Davis, the prison became the contemporary, the, the, how do I put it, the post-emancipation way of suspending rights of citizenship and of withdrawing civil protections from a black population entitled on paper to full rights. So one question that emerges now, I can hardly pursue this here, is how the security forces now running prisons are trained in the same methods of crowd control that are geared toward counterterrorism, and how now the, the crowd control methods geared toward counterterrorism are being used to suppress urban uprising or even nonviolent demonstration. The broader question is how to understand a systematic effort on the part of a legal regime to retract the rights it is obligated to extend to suspend rights to association assembly movement, due process, habeas corpus, that can compel a court or a police officer to explain reasons for detention. The suspension of such rights in a patterned and disproportionate manner to minority populations can thus be understood as a way of withdrawing or suspending citizenship. The police assault on black populations, if we can speak frankly, is the reverberating life of slavery in our times, both of which sought and seek the denial of freedom, the suspension of citizenship and civilian status, and the use of non-lethal and lethal forms of legal violence to achieve these goals. In Gaza, for instance, the killing of civilians is only a war crime if those civilians are not involuntary human shields. If they're positioned in that way, they are not exactly combatants, but more like human war material. Bodies transposed into human shields a pure instrument of another party with a will, that is, the warring party from attack. It's not exactly that the children running by the sea are large enough to stop a bomb with their bodies. They do not shield in any literal way. This is a figural operation, to be sure, one that derealizes the fact that those bodies, when bombed, will be destroyed definitively, and they shield nothing. They are shielded by nothing. They are radically exposed. The argument that those children, who indeed children were um, killed on, on the beach uh, or in the playground, um, the argument, that argument depends on effective operation of a figure so that when any of us see videos of civilians killed, we see instead enemy combatants or their weaponry destroyed. Uh, the transposition must be complete in order to work at all. Just as one might seek to destroy a stockpile of arms, one might destroy populations as well if those populations are effectively figured as part of weaponry. 
Of course, sometimes the argument changes, and we hear that Hamas has sent its children out to play, and that they're seeking to have their children die by Israeli bombs in order, as Netanyahu puts it, uh, to produce, uh, I can barely quote this, what he called the telegenically dead. That video then, um, which shows the death of children, that video is understood as a means of accusing Israel of a war crime, um, displaying the inhumanity of the Israeli army, but the clear implication that we're supposed to under- is, is, is that we're supposed to understand that Hamas, or indeed Palestinians more generally, send their young children out to play on the beach or in the playground so that they will be killed, um, and that this is the kind of people they are, uh, that they sacrifice their young, and that the staged death of their children is then used unjustifiably, unfairly against Israel. So much to be said about that form of reasoning. But let me move on before I lose control altogether. (laughs) At one point, the Israeli government, and I'm almost done here, at one point, the Israeli government, in the person of Netanyahu, defended itself against the allegation of war crimes by pointing out that the general population had voted for Hamas, suggesting, it seemed, that anyone who voted for that party not only endorsed the role of Hamas in its conflict with Israel, but in the very act of voting, or voting in that way, became an active participant in the conflict, became effectively a combatant. So voting is therefore construed as a way of signing up for the armed forces. Now, at this point, the act of voting is on a continuum with an act of war, and so voting for that party becomes a way of becoming a combatant. One loses one's civilian civilian status by voting. Okay. Very interesting conclusion that once again establishes the exercise of legal rights as acts of war. But under the condition in which the majority did, in fact, vote for Hamas, that majority is considered to be the party and also to stand for the party, for the people, setting aside the fact that some people voted for Fatah and others didn't vote. Through a series of collapsed identifications, the entire population is fused with the warring faction. The idea of protecting civilian lives becomes Unthinkable when there is no concept of a civilian population, right? So if you are able to erase the concept of the civilian population, you are indeed incapable of, of, of committing a war crime of this kind. This is a, perhaps a long-winded way of saying, on the part of the Israelis who make this argument, they all hate us, why should we spare any of them? Okay. So my purpose is in no way to lend support to Hamas. Despite rumors to the contrary, I do not support Hamas, but continue to ally only with nonviolent efforts to approach the political situation in Israel-Palestine. I'm sorry that I have to interrupt my argument to make that clear, but apparently I do. (laughs) I hope I have. So there's another reason why it's difficult to establish civilians in the scene of bombardment. That has to do with whether to be a civilian, one first has to belong to a recognizable state. After all, international law makes provisions for the rights of stateless people as it does for the rights of the occupied. But these are constantly disputed, as we know. So the Palestinian Authority, with the support of Hamas, decided to become a signatory to the International Criminal Court in order to pursue its claim that war crimes have taken place against civilians, and further, that those killed by Israel in the summer of 2014 cannot rightly be understood as involuntary human shields. Such an inquiry 
uh, if accepted, and indeed the membership in the ICCC has been already affirmed, but once that investigation opens up, if it does, and it looks indeed likely that it will, a broader investigation into Israeli allegations that Hamas committed war crimes as well um, uh, will be obligatory. Will be obligatory. So any investigation by the ICC will consider the entire situation um, um, and and will look into evidence. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, concerning whether Israel and Hamas both have committed war crimes. So this claim before the ICC may well bring a new level of international recognition for Palestinian statehood. It seems as though the claim to have suffered a war crime actually can, under certain circumstances, make a people eligible to become a state. There are several implications of the International Criminal Court accepting Palestine as a member state. And one interesting obstruction to the process is, of course, the Oslo Accords, signed in 1995. It was then that Palestine agreed to dividing authority over its lands such that it does not exercise all the functions of a state and has even agreed to a binding accord which prohibits them from that full exercise. Recall that the West Bank is divided into three sections, where Section A is largely under Palestinian control, Section B involves joint Palestinian-Israeli security control, and C, where most of the settlements are situated, involves full Israeli civil governance and security control. So Oslo poses a problem for accepting Palestine as a state, since it has contracted to relinquish state functions in some parts of its territory. On the other hand, we might say, the very fact that there are settlements in Section C constitutes a war crime under the Rome Statute that governs the International Criminal Court. That's clearly stated, that the, and I quote, the transfer directly or indirectly by the occupying power of parts of its own civilian population into the territory it occupies is a war crime. Since both the ICC and other international bodies have already recognized Palestine as occupied, that definition of war crime surely applies. Okay, so Palestine applies to the ICC in order to um, further its claim that there are war crimes against war crimes were committed against its own population. But once it's under the, once it becomes a member state and becomes under its jurisdiction, as it were, the ICC could turn around and de-ratify the Oslo Accord that allows for the settlements. Okay. Why, why is the Israeli government trying to delegitimate the ICC at this moment? Why is the Israeli government on the phone to, to Merkel saying you must withdraw funding from the ICC? Okay. One reason that Israel is clearly very upset by the ICC petition is that once the ICC starts its investigation into the situation, it may well find war crimes not only in the assault on Gazan civilians, but quite literally written into the Oslo Accords, right? So those accords would be actually found to be illegal. If the latter turns out to be the case, that deliberately moving a settler colonial population onto occupied lands is a breach in international law, the ICC could mandate the dismantling of those accords, or at least make a very strong judgment about it, which would open up all kinds of questions about where security forces may be and what the right borders ought to be. This is surely one reason why the State of Israel is quite furiously petitioning European states 
including Germany, to defund and delegitimate the International Criminal Court. It's an irony of history that Germany's response is, excuse me, but these are, the ICC is based on the Nuremberg trials. We're trying to take responsibility for our history. Okay. (laughs) Interestingly enough, one sees in this ICC petition how it's not possible to become recognized as a state until one can furnish evidence that, that one is already recognized. It's a double bind. Once the evidence is accepted, various UN uh, uh, proclamations, for instance, work to this effect, then statehood becomes a possibility. Recognition of statehood is not a punctual act. It doesn't happen all at once. It's rather an incremental process. Um, But there's another point to be made here, perhaps a final point. It's precisely because Palestine has a war crime allegation to make namely that its citizens were unjustifiably targeted and killed during the 2014 bombardment, that its petition to be regarded as a state may well be recognized. If it is the latter, then in some ways the path of international adjudication and reparation for having been the victim of a war crime is what makes the recognition of statehood possible, at least by the ICC. Indeed, without having an allegation... Um, There is no going to the ICC, and there's no going to the ICC without being recognized. So the allegation puts into motion the entire recognition process on a new scale and in a new way. Um, I'm not saying that even though the attacks on civilian populations in Palestine were wrong, they may well lead to some felicitous uh, conclusions. On the contrary, I'm I'm saying precisely because they were wrong and recognizably wrong within the context of international law, there may well be an opening to statehood, which ideally would imperil the settlements as well. And let's remember some of the skepticism about Palestinian statehood has been based on the idea that that any such state would have to accept the occupation as its fundamental structure, which is not acceptable, right? So this ICC route allows for a possible potential dismantling of the Oslo Accords and the provisions made for settlements. So um, um, so in a way, it opens up new possibilities for Palestinian territorial integrity. In effect, by bombing Palestinian civilians, Israel has perhaps accelerated the path toward pa- Palestinian statehood. It's odd to think the commission of a war crime against Palestinian civilian populations may well become in time a founding act of statehood for the Palestinian people. But before we start wagering (laughs) uh, whether an atrocity can once again found a state, let us perhaps mark the limit of calculation here, right? Since our very notion of what is wrong and why it is wrong, of what constitutes a wrong, depends on our abiding sense of the incalculable value of embodied life. And without that abiding sense, of course, there could be uh, no moral grounding for the kinds of claims we seek to make. Indeed, it may well be um, that if we continue to mark and archive and present and demonstrate the conditions under which the war dead appear, um, we do that not as a calculation that the political effects might be beneficial so much, but we do it precisely to affirm the incalculable. Thank you.
<clears throat> involuntary and voluntary human shielding. Why don't you take a seat? Shall I do that? Human shielding, wa- wagering, hedging, <laughs> betting, extortion in war, <laughs> the body instrumentalized for war treated as mat- uh, military materiel, counterterrorism strategies shaping prison and policing practice, civilians and citizens uh, being reconceptualized, and this question of the relationship between statehood recognition and international criminal processes. We have 15 minutes. <laughs> uh, 15 minutes. I'll take questions in groups. You might like to identify yourself at the beginning of your intervention. Who would like to start us off? Nikki. Uh, there's a roving microphone. Hi. Thank you so much for your lecture. I'm, I'm Nikki Lacey uh, from here at LSE. Um, and you ended on such an eloquent uh, note, uh, sort of against thinking of these things in terms of wages and consequences, that I'm, I'm, I'm now feeling a bit bad about my question. But I do want you to take you back to the, the, that part of your lecture where you were analysing the sort of underlying logic. And you drew this incredibly striking analogy between the involuntary human shield in the international criminal law war context and the Ferguson, Edward Garner kind of context. And I'm very, I mean, I thought that the, that the sort of broad analogy between the international and the domestic, what's happening with militarised policing, etc., etc., differential uh, you know, value of, of various kinds of protections for different groups, totally uh, persuasive. But I do wonder about the, how far you can push the analogy. It seems to me that the logic of that, what's going on, which is really a debate about trying to displace responsibility in the involuntary human shield uh, context at the international level, is very strongly premised for both sides on the sort of absolute lack of agency, objectification, instrumentalization of the involuntary human shields. Uh, whereas, although it's obviously true, say in the Edward Garner kind of case, that there's something very disturbing going on about, as it were, reading off the risk of dangerous agency from race or other categories. Nonetheless, there the logic seems to be importantly premised on the capacity for agency of this person. So that's the question. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, Aisha. Another Hi, Aisha Chubukchu, uh, Center for the Study of Human Rights, LSE. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, trying to deconstruct quickly all your deconstructions. <laughs> It seemed to me that a basic distinction between what you call the domain of civil protection on the one hand and the protocols of war were underwriting what you had to say to such an extent that you seem to suggest that the sphere of civil protection was almost being replaced by protocols of war. Now my question is really about the understanding, the liberal understanding of the civil domain as a domain free of the protocols of war in the first place. Is that correct? Do you subscribe to that? 
to such an extent that we can now, now, the historicity of now, to be underlined, can claim that the domain of civil protection is being replaced by protocols of war. Thank you. I'll take, may I take one more? Sure. Perhaps from, is there somebody there? Or, yes. Thank you. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't think it's about that domain. I think it's the the, uh, the body. I found the fact that you were saying that how the economic logic is the only one that allows the definition of rationality to be understood like that. I think moving beyond that, that was for me the key there thing, the existence as a stance thing. And it's really interesting that the human is what is in need of shielding, and yet at the same time, the human is the only shield we've got against uh, that kind of neoliberal logic. So Mike, what I want to ask you, I mean, given that we want, I mean, the police here is going to get tasers, and in New York they're going to get machine guns. Um, it's, I mean, where's, where's the hope? Because it's not just the domestic black body uh, or the Palestinian body, it's also the, the, the bodies of the deported. I mean, the Jimmy Mubenga case here, the guy who was killed while he was on the plane. And the response to that was now the deportations are done on flights where there are no other passengers. So it's also this elimination of, you know, of what, how you can actually see that what happens. It's also that invisibilization that's happening. And I just wondered where, you know, how, how would we shield that human that, whose existence is the one that get, should and is beyond calculation. And, and to claim a, a space for um, to, to say that one can actually one doesn't have to be irrational in order to be uneconomic. You know, there are other ways of making that argument which, which go beyond that, to refuse that rationality. Thanks. Okay, all big, uh, important questions. Thank you. I didn't catch your name. Natasha. Natasha, okay. Um, um, well, let me say, say this. Um, I think what probably could this is uh, uh, in, in, in relation to the, to the first question, you know, what, what are the limits of the analogy uh, uh, between, say, um, the attacks on Occupy or the attacks on, um, on uh, um, r- racial minorities in the U.S. and the situation in, in Palestine? Isn't responsibility displaced perhaps in different ways? And isn't the capacity for agency figured in different ways? Uh, and of course it is. There's no doubt about it. At the same time, I do think that there's um, an operation of racism, and here I don't want to say there's a single operation of racism. I think racism unfortunately takes many forms. It would be unfortunate if it took one form too, but um, um, but it does take several forms. But one convergent form is precisely um, to uh, constantly invest the Palestinian with lethal force and to invest um, the uh, uh, in, in these in these cases in in the U.S. and in in the urban environment to to um, invest the black man on the street with with a potentially criminal or or violent intention, right? So I want to say that there's a um, there's a suffusion um, of the um, of of the minority with this uh, um, this phantasm of a, of an always almost enacted violence, right? 
So the first question uh, asked to, I mean, anybody who's Palestinian knows, you meet someone, you say, I'm Palestinian. So, you know, very often, you know, so do you believe in violence? What's your view on violence? It's like Palestinian violent, Palestinian violent, right? Just like that's that's where it goes. Uh, it, it has to be countered or it has to be dealt with or negotiated in some way. I think that's a really common form of racism. And I, I do think that um, that there's a, um, I, I also think there's a paranoid structure in this kind of racial phantasm where the aggression that is dealt is actually reconstrued as coming from the outside. Um, and I tried to write about that in relationship to Rodney King, um, uh, where I, I called it schematic racism many years ago. So I do want to say that um, that something of that is already at work. And also, um, uh, the deep skepticism, whether this is a life or a set of lives worth pursuing, whether these were the lives that were meant to be protected by law. Um, and I think that actually relates to um, Aisha's question about civil protection, because we have to ask, um, for whom does civil protection work? In other words, What's the civil body? What's the civil population that is that is imagined by the stipulation, or that that is um, articulated through the very specific ways in which that stipulation is is realized, right? So, who whoever had civil protection and 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 protected from what? We might say protected from the. Uh, abrogation of basic rights, protected against the loss of rights, but there's also a sense of, in the term protection, you know, protected against who? Who's the uncivil against whom civil protection functions, right? And that seems to me to be at least implicitly there very often in that. So if you ask me, well, just as a matter of stipulation or definition, do I accept uh, the distinction between civil protection and the protocols of war? I would say, yes, I've done my reading, and I know that that's an operative distinction, and it's an important one to learn, and it's an important one to hold on to. What I'm, all I'm saying is that what, what I think we're witnessing in various parts of the globe, and I really could have talked about several, is the erosion of civil protections uh, through security measures that import the protocols of war into, um, into domestic policing. Um, and that's and that's why we have reason to be alarmed. Um, um, and I, I think now that police functions and military functions are not so easily disarticulated, um, um, the whole idea of civil protection also becomes something to think critically about. Like what is what is necessary to protect the civil population from? an attack that might deprive it of its rights to property, its rights to liberty, its right, all, all of those rights we hold dear. And, and I, I think, I think that's, that's part of what we're up against. Um, um, so I think there's a difference between kind of stipulating there is a distinction abstractly and in law between civil protection and protocols of war and claiming... Um, that it's an effective distinction, or asking what what are what is the historical fate of that distinction during our historical times, uh, and what do we want to do about it? Right. That's when the question of a legal argument becomes a political one, and perhaps even an, an, an historical one. Um, um, 
I also uh, I want to say this about the economic logic. I don't want to be a fool and say we shouldn't calculate in our political activities. Yeah, we always calculate. Is that going to work? Is it not going to work? Where do we go? Where do, who do we say? Which, which is the better language? What's the better place to stand? Who do we vote for? You know, what's our, what's our, what's our, what's our program? What's our party? You know, we all wager and reckon, right? And not every cost-benefit analysis is necessarily neoliberal. I think it may become neoliberal when we start regarding our our bodies and our very lives as as capital <laughs> that we spend, and we're we're actually willing to completely deplete those coffers, as it were, uh, for the sake of of our of our political action. And I I don't even I'm not even. Uh, arguing against Gandhi, for instance, you know, who claimed, like, yes, there are some times where you do give your life. I understand that. But I think there's a specific logic here that um, stops us from um, asking the more general question of what, um, how do we think about collective resistance, not just in the abstract, but the historical possibilities for collective resistance now? What, what form do they take? And for instance, um, I think that there are some anti-instrumentalist moves. Um, we can even go back to the idea of the, the human barricade, which um, Banu Bargu talks about as, as being motivated by a cost-benefit analysis. And I, I'm thinking um, of, of Bashak Ertur's work. I think she's not here tonight. But there are ways of thinking about the human barricade as collective embodied existence and persistence. Um, which doesn't just value existence as such or persistence as such, but actually exemplifies forms of interdependency and tenacity and resistance that are that are that that actually bring out what is incalculably valuable. Um, and I, I want to I want to hold out for that uh, that there are concerted embodied actions that have as their their aim the in, the incalculable. Um, uh, value, like we, you know, we talk about uh, populations that are more valued than other populations, and we hold out for the idea that there sh- that people should be equally valued. All populations should be equally valued, and that's good. But if our idea of equality becomes a purely economic one, like you know, how many how many points do we give to, give to this life, or how many points do we give to that life? Um, uh, A.L. Weitzman was telling me this morning that that's an actual calculation that sometimes happens, uh, you know, within war, um, um, especially especially uh, on the part of the Israeli military. Then I think we're we're mistaking our idea of equality, right? Um, it, it can't be purely numerical in that sense, and we're we're not looking um, we're not looking for a calculus uh, that would help us establish equality. Equality has to be actually um, uh, a, f- a function of uh, of living together and living together on on conditions that make lives livable and possible and persistent and even capable of flourishing and all of those values it seems to me have to be there both embodied in the action and in the aim and if we if we give ourselves completely over to calculation completely over to instrumentality then we uh, I'm afraid. Are within the wars. We're still within the war zone, but we're in the economic dimension of the war zone, <laughs> and um, and that worries me. That worries me. You know, I think what, another way to put that is: if somebody over there is calculating how much your life is worth, 
and whether they could do away with you and handle the war crime allegation, uh, the, the answer to that is not to say, actually, this is how much my life is worth and give a, and give a counter-calculation, right? Because then what I'm doing is I'm subscribing to the, to the calculus, and I'm confirming that the calculus is the, is the scene of politics and even the language through which we understand collective action. And, you know, can't go deep into it, but my sense is that more is at stake uh, and, and perhaps even something incalculable is at stake. Well, what an amazingly uh, rich and inspiring lecture and discussion we've had. Frustratingly and sadly, uh, our time is up. Uh, I know you'll want to go on thinking and talking about uh, what we've all heard tonight. So let me mention that there will be a podcast on the LSE website. And in addition, in due course, a version of this lecture will appear on the London Review in the London Review of International Law, which is now your compulsory reading. Yes. Uh, for now, please join me in thanking Professor Butler for an extraordinary lecture. <laughs> <laughs>